This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're broadcasting out of the University of Manitoba and we can be found at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. On the program today, we will start off with Dennis Pilon. He is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective and teaches at the University of Victoria. He'll give us his take on reaction to the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Also, I'll have a conversation with Professor Farid Isak. He is a tenured professor at the University of Johannesburg, and he is in Canada for Israel Apartheid Week. And we'll also speak to an organizer of Israel Apartheid Week for the McMaster University campus. Her name is Anissa Mirza, and we'll have a conversation with her. And finally, we'll speak to two individuals in British Columbia, Chief Fabian Alexis is the chief of the Okanagan Indian Band who has enacted a blockade in their region. We'll also speak to Grand Chief Stuart Phillips who is the president of the Union of BC Chiefs. We'll also have Music is the Weapon, the Alert Headlines and Around the Left. And now the alert headlines for March 4th, 2010. This week marks the 6th annual Israeli Apartheid Week being held in more than 40 cities and on 5 continents. Outside North America and Europe, IAW is also taking place in South Africa, Palestine, Lebanon and Australia. University campuses are marking the week with lectures, films, multimedia events, cultural performances and demonstrations. According to its organizers, the events have become some of the most important global events in the Palestine Solidarity Calendar. Its aim, they state, is to contribute to this chorus of international opposition to Israeli apartheid and to bolster support for the boycotts, divestments and sanctions campaign. Liberal leader Michael Ignatieff has joined other provincial and federal politicians in condemning the Israeli Apartheid Week activities happening on university campuses across Canada. Ignatieff says Israeli Apartheid Week runs counter to Canada's shared values of mutual respect and tolerance. He calls the week an attempt to heighten the tension in our communities around the tragic conflict in the Middle East. MPPs in the Ontario Legislature have also unanimously condemned Israeli Apartheid Week, voting for a resolution that denounced the campus events. Conservative legislator Peter Sherman told Shalom Life, a Toronto-based Jewish website, that if you're going to label Israel as apartheid, then you're also attacking Canadian values, end quote. Sherman tabled the motion in the provincial legislature and argued that the mere application of the phrase Israeli apartheid is about as close to hate speech as one can get without being arrested. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel won't pull out of a key part of the West Bank even if there's a peace agreement with the Palestinians. 
Israel considers control of the border along the eastern border of the West Bank vital to block the flow of weapons from Jordan to Palestinians. Netanyahu's pronouncement came as the U.S. is pushing hard to restart the talks. Vice President Joe Biden is due to arrive in the region next week with U.S. envoy George Mitchell has been shuttling between the sides in recent months to try to resume negotiations. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has released its alternative federal budget for 2010 to coincide with the Conservatives' budget announcement this week. In addition to the budget document, the alternative budget put forward a six-point jobs plan to confront the job crisis and get Canada working again. The plan would bring unemployment back to pre-recession levels by the end of 2011 and demonstrates there is a better way to reach fiscal balance through smart investments and smart taxation. The alternative budget can be found at policyalternatives.ca. Canada will press for G8 countries to agree this month on a unified set of new sanctions aimed at Iran's nuclear weapons program at a meeting of the group's foreign ministers in Gatineau, Quebec. Canada wants the G8 to act if the UN Security Council cannot pass a motion in favor of sanctions. Canada and its allies are still hoping momentum for UN sanctions will be fueled by a report by the International Atomic Energy Agency that reports the agency cannot rule out the possibility that Iran is developing nuclear weapons because Tehran has not cooperated with inspectors. The pace of the Security Council debate could determine whether the G8 moves quickly to its own sanctions at the foreign minister's meeting. Agents of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, who traveled to Egypt and corresponded with Egyptian officials, indirectly led to the mistreatment of a Toronto man by authorities there. Previously classified documents reveal that Canadian security officers visited Egypt regarding the case of Ahmad el-Mati one of three Arab-Canadian men who were abused in Syrian prison cells. El-Mati was also tortured by Egyptian officers. Former Supreme Court Justice Frank Ikobuchi had an inquiry into whether the detentions of El-Mati, Abdul al-Malki, and Muyed Nuruddin resulted from the actions of CSIS, the RCMP, and the Department of Foreign Affairs. In the documents released this past week, Aiko Bucci wrote that CSIS's correspondence with Egyptian authorities, preparation of questions and travel to Egypt for the purpose of obtaining information about El-Mati, quote, likely contributed indirectly, end quote, to his mistreatment in Egypt. In Chile, the death toll from the devastating earthquake that rocked the Latin American nation on February 27th has topped 700 and is expected to rise. As many as 2 million people have been left homeless, the 8.8-magnitude quake is one of the strongest in recorded history. More than 500,000 homes were destroyed or heavily damaged. Rescue workers are searching for survivors under the rubble of collapsed buildings, but a series of strong aftershocks have hampered the rescue efforts. The quake caused widespread damage to hospitals, schools, roads, and other infrastructure. Officials said adobe homes have been the most affected and that indigenous populations are most at risk. A tsunami triggered by the earthquake caused additional damage in some southern areas of Chile. Iranian authorities have closed two major opposition newspapers for allegedly breaching media laws. Etmad is the country's biggest circulation newspaper and Iran Dukt 
is a weekly paper linked to the opposition candidate defeated in last year's presidential election. Authorities have already blocked most opposition websites within the country and disrupted local communication services to prevent protesters from organizing demonstrations. Press Freedom Group. Reporters Without Borders said last month that there were over 65 media professionals and online citizen journalists jailed in Iran, the highest record in the organization's 25-year history. President Barack Obama has signed a one-year extension of several provisions in the Patriot Act after the Senate abandoned efforts to reform the controversial law. Privacy groups had urged the Senate to rewrite sections of the bill, which allows the government to secretly access a wide range of private business records without warrants. Another contested provision allows the government to secretly wiretap persons without any connection to terrorist groups. Senate Democrats failed to muster enough votes to rewrite the law. The United Nations General Assembly approved a resolution on February 26 calling for Israel and the Palestinians to conduct impartial investigations into war crimes committed during Israel's assault on Gaza last year, as documented in the Goldstone Report. The United States, along with Canada, Nauru, Panama, Macedonia, and Micronesia, joined Israel in voting against the resolution. And those are the alert headlines for March fourth, two thousand and ten. And now around the left for March fourth, two thousand and ten. On March eighth, the University of Winnipeg will host the first annual Afghanistan Film Festival and Mini Market. Three films will be screened: Enemies of Happiness, Beauty School of Kabul, and Afghan Star. The mini market will feature various fairly traded Afghan crafts and soaps. Tickets are twelve dollars for adults, seven dollars for students, and are available at the University of Winnipeg, Red River College, University of Manitoba, and McNally Robinson. All proceeds will be used to fund the Omi E Mirmum Orphanage and the Omid Girls Scholarship Fund. As part of Israeli Apartheid Week at the University of Manitoba, Canadian Dimension is co-sponsoring two public lectures by Mordecai Brimberg. On March 9th, Brimberg will speak at the Millennium Library in Winnipeg at 7 p.m. His talk will ask the question: Is there a new anti-Semitism? The next day, March 10th, he will be delivering a lecture in the Concourse Lounge in University College at the University of Manitoba. This lecture begins at 12:30 and considers if the topic of Israel as an apartheid state is a legitimate subject of discussion on Canadian university campuses. Canada and Israel: Building Apartheid. The new book by Eves Engler offers a devastating account of Canadian complicity in 20th and 21st century colonialism, dispossession, and war crimes. Engler will be launching the book at the Chinese Community Centre at 397 Kent Street in Ottawa. The launch will begin at 7 p.m. on March 10th. Bill Fletcher Jr. is the featured speaker in the 2010 Phyllis Clark Memorial Lecture. He will be delivering a talk entitled "Operating in the Obama Moment: Challenges for Progressives." Fletcher is a longtime labor and international activist, the executive editor of the Black Commentator, and founder for the Center of Labor Renewal. The lecture will be held in the Kara Commons Lounge at Ryerson University in Toronto. It begins at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, March 10th. And that is around the left for March fourth, two thousand and ten.
Alert Radio is the official podcast of Canada's leading progressive political magazine, Canadian Dimension. If you'd like to order a subscription to Canadian Dimension, go to our website at canadiandimension.com or pick up our latest issue on newsstands today. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're joined now by Dennis Pilon, who teaches political science at the University of Victoria and is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Welcome back to Alert Radio, Dennis. Thanks for having me. Now, um, you are on record as opposing the billions of dollars of public money spent on the Winter Olympics. Now, why is that? Many Canadians might be asking, don't you like sports? Weren't you elated by the Canadian athletes and their record-breaking 14 gold medals, more than any nation, including the USA? Dennis Pilon? Well, yes. I mean, I, I want to separate out these things because, you know, on the one hand, you know, sport, uh, people should, you know, do what they want, and I've got no complaint about that. And even about the Olympics, if people like the Olympics, that's great. You know, I just don't think that they should be subsidized uh, with so much public money, uh, especially when it's not very good value for money. Uh, if we care, for instance, about health outcomes or sport outcomes, surely we could spend that money in local communities, uh, dropping fees at communities centers, things that would allow people to become directly involved in sport rather than being, you know, essentially passive viewers, uh, mostly on television. Well, what about the infrastructure that the people of British Columbia will inherit? Well, again, I think, you know, we're supposed to be a democratic society. If the infrastructure is such a good idea, why do we need the Olympics to justify it? I mean, if transit is good and we should do it, then let's just do it. Why hide behind the Olympics as a rationale? The reason why the politicians have to do it is because the Olympics and other mega events are a key way of transferring millions of public dollars into private hands. Well, Dennis Pilon, uh, do you not see the benefits of this overwhelming sense of national pride that's overtaken the country? You know, people are interested in a lot of things, and people could be proud of a lot of things. I don't take this kind of managed spectacle uh, as uh, a terribly deep uh, measure of our worth as a nation. Uh, you know, if I had a couple of uh, billion dollars I could spend, I, I guarantee you I could put on a pretty big party, and people would feel pretty good about themselves. Uh, but what we really want to know is, as a matter of public policy, is this the way that we should do these sorts of things? Uh, is this the best bang for the buck? And I always find it funny that these right-wingers who are always screaming about efficiency and how we shouldn't waste any money, well, the facts are in, right? Olympics and mega-events are well-studied. They are a money loser. They're a money loser for the state. They're a money loser for the people. Uh, the only people that they really benefit in terms of, of the money or the investment are the, you know, the people who get the transfers, the various contractors, uh, the media organizations who obviously make a lot of money off advertising, all the sponsors. They're the real winners of this. Uh, we could do some fabulous public event, save a lot of money, and cut all these people out. But, of course, you know, that's not what uh, our current governments or media want. Well, lots of groups demonstrated against the games while they were on, but they were pretty much all dismissed easily, no matter what they were talking about or protesting. All the money, for example, they were pointing out all the money that could have gone into producing housing for the homeless or recreation facilities for the poor and working population. All of this got lost as if it didn't happen. So how do you register dissent? How do you engage in opposition politics in the face of all the boosterism and the real jubilation, genuine jubilation, felt by most Canadians as they were glued to their TV sets? Dennis Pilon. 
Well, it's an and. It's not an or, right? I mean, sure, if people want to see our hockey players, you know, play hockey, that's great. I mean, I don't think we should make that the issue. The issue is what's happening on the side. You know, as the people are dancing in front of the curtain, what's going on behind the curtain? That's what we want to bring into this discussion. And I think the people who are active on these issues have to recognize no one ever thanks you for changing the world. You know, nobody ever steps up and says, hey, you know what? You were right. Uh, we really dropped the ball on that issue. No, we just change. We can see the impact of Olympic activists on the very changed way in which the Olympic organization and VanOck responded to indigenous peoples. Now, there are lots of complaints about what happened in this Olympics around indigenous issues, particularly around the symbols, uh, and, and I'm not disputing any of that. But this, this Olympics organization made a lot more effort to reach out to indigenous people than any previous one did. And that is a result of activism. That is a result of people creating friction. So yes, I mean, as usual, the critics got largely ignored, but not entirely ignored. And I think that if without these efforts, we'd see even less attention to issues of gentrification and the way in which now the real cost of this Olympics, I mean, <laughs> we're never going to get a full accounting unless this government gets defeated, but we are going to see who is effectively subsidizing these games when the British Columbia government brings out its new budget and we see the places uh, where they've made cuts. Dennis Pilon, I'd like to thank you for appearing on Alert Radio this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. Israel Apartheid Week has become a very rowdy and certainly a political event on university campuses since it began a few years ago. To mark Israel Apartheid Week, we have two interviews. First, we are going to speak to Farid Isak. He is a professor from the University of Johannesburg, and he has traveled all the way to McMaster University from South Africa to deliver a keynote address. After that, we'll speak to Anissa Mirza, and she is the organizer of Israel Apartheid Week on the McMaster University campus in Hamilton. Farid Isak, welcome to Alert Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you for appearing. Now, you are visiting Hamilton as part of Israel Apartheid Week. Um, I'd like to ask you, you have been to the occupied territories and Israel as well, uh, as recently as eight months ago. I would like to ask you why you have compared what you've seen in the occupied territories to the experiences of South Africans and why you say it's worse. Well, uh, firstly, uh, both in uh, legal terms and in social terms, uh, not only myself, but just about every single South African that have been engaged in the liberation struggle have reached the conclusion that not only is uh, apartheid or life under the occupation, and indeed in quote-unquote Israel proper, akin to apartheid, uh, but in the words of uh, a number of South Africans, much worse than what we have ever experienced under apartheid. Uh, both the kinds of separation that we see, the way in which apartheid manifests itself, um, the, huge, uh, for the, the, the huge wall uh, that, uh, that forces people to live separate lives, the uh, separate identification number plates for people, 
um, the idea of collective punishment, holding people hostage to the simple crime of claiming their, their ancestral land. In many ways, uh, what we see in Palestine is uh, not simply akin, uh, but as I was saying, much worse. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the kind of repression that we see in Israeli society, um, detention without trial, the uh, criminalization of people simply on the basis of their birth, um, <clears throat> the discrimination against people uh, because they are Palestinians, and then, of course, above all, the whole idea that uh, God has carved out a separate piece of land uh, for people uh, because of his contact with people. All of these have a close affinity uh, with apartheid. Um, and uh, there were several manifestations of uh, life under apartheid that uh, we see, that we see in South Africa, but in a far more developed form uh, in Israel itself, uh, particularly the forms of uh, collective punishments um, the whole idea of the criminalization of an entire people. Um, so uh, these are just some of the, and of course uh, we know that uh, in legal terms, uh, the, uh, the, the legalization of torture, um, the banning of organizations. Uh, so in many different respects, both legally and socially, uh, yeah, we have reached uh, this conclusion. Well, we have listeners across the country. I know you'll be speaking to students and whoever attends the event at Israel Apartheid Week. Um, your closing comments for our listeners across the country, Farid Isak. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, it's not so much about uh, who are unique victims. I don't think that there was anything uniquely South African about apartheid. Uh, our ability as human beings... Um, morally driven people depends entirely on how can we put ourselves in the feet of marginalized on those who society wants to view as lesser. In this case, regrettably, most uh, people think of the, uh, of the Palestinians as part of a larger Arab blob, a difficult, a complicated blob for us. And so uh, the struggle of the Palestinian people is a part of a larger struggle, I think, for all of us. Uh, to become a better human being. Professor Farid Isak, thank you for joining us. Anissa Mirza is an organizer of Israel Apartheid Week on the campus of McMaster University in Hamilton. She is an undergrad student at that institution. Welcome to Alert Radio, Anissa. Thank you for having me, Jess. Thank you for being on the program. Your campus is just beginning its Israel Apartheid events. Talk to us a bit about the response on campus to last year's events and the year before. What response was there from the university administration? Did it permit the events to take place? And what response did you get from Jewish students, Jewish students and faculty from Hamilton's Jewish community? Anissa Mirza. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Sure. Um, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a proud organizer of uh, Israel Apartheid Week, uh, along with uh, two other clubs who are now hosting Israel Apartheid Week this year as well. So uh, it's great to see that the uh, movement is growing and, uh, you know, clubs are taking on and standing up for this issue um, and uh, standing up for peace and justice. And, uh, you know, this many McMaster-sponsored uh, student union clubs that are hosting this event. Uh, and the more these numbers grow, the more the movement uh, grows as well. So it's very uh, heartening to see this, and uh, it really makes an impact on uh, those that are planning this event. 
Um, and uh, as you mentioned, um, you know, Israel Apartheid Week has now, this is the third year we're celebrating um, Israel Apartheid Week, or we're having Israel Apartheid Week rather on campuses. Um, it's the sixth annual Israeli Apartheid as far as the movement is concerned, but it's the third uh, year here at McMaster. It started back in 2008. Uh, that's when I was in my first year. And uh, I have to admit, I wasn't an exec member at the time. At the time, there were uh, uh, a very devoted set of separate uh, people who were execs of uh, McMaster Muslims for Peace and Justice, MMPJ. And, uh, you know, they, they sat down and they heard about this event called IAW, IAW is Real Apartheid Week. And they heard a lot of controversy about it. And so the executive decided, let's look into it and kind of see what this is all about. I mean, MMPJ is an activist club. We're a club that stands up for human rights issues, uh, be they within Canada or internationally, within the Muslim world or non-Muslim world, uh, so long as it's an issue of injustice and even if it's a controversial one, we have never shied away from it. So with that mandate and always being professional, very academic in our approach, uh, we research into, you know, the veracity of this event and why such controversy um, and the way that it was conducted, this event. And uh, after the research, the exec decided that this would be a very important event uh, to bring to campus, to McMaster University. And so tell us that, what happened that first year that you decided so to mark that Israel first apartheid year, it was a uh, It was a lot of excitement um, to bring it to campus. Uh, we had our keynote speaker, just one event. We didn't have a full week. We had one event. And uh, the keynote speaker at that one event was Khalid Mommar, the president of Canadian Arab Federation. And uh, he was going to be our keynote speaker, speaking after a documentary screening of uh, The Iron Wall. That was a new documentary at the time. So... That was our event, and it was all set to go. And um, a day before the event, you know, the exec is printing out posters and went down to the diversity services to get them approved. You need a stamp of approval. And we were told that uh, you are not allowed to print these posters because you cannot use the term Israel and part-time in the same sentence. And the university does not, this violates the university's, uh, you know, code of conduct and whatnot, and this is not allowed on our campus. You cannot have this uh, poster. It's offensive, it's wrong, it's unacademic. So we were banned from uh, these posters, essentially, um, and we uh, even asked our student union, saying, who's, who's saying we cannot have this? I mean, if the administration is saying you can't have this, well, you represent us, the students, you're the union, we pay you. But we were told that no, um, people uh, higher up in the administration, including, uh, I believe, uh, VPs of the administration, had told us that we were not allowed to have this event. So uh, we were not allowed to have the poster, rather. So we uh, went back and brainstormed, what do we do? We can't advertise for an event, but we can have the event. I mean, we'll get no one at the event. How do we, how do we make the, how do we have this event and not let it be censored and let the public know? And we decided to just type up a new poster saying, this is an event we cannot name, a country we cannot criticize, a topic we cannot speak of. Come see for yourself the screening of the Iron Wall. And we had, I tell you, Jeff, a full house. It was a large lecture room that could take around 200 people, and we had a full house come out to that event to hear, uh, you know, what was being censored. And uh, that really, for the uh, executive and for those that hosted the event and who fought for this event to go forward, it really was a great, uh, very heartening to see this because it tells us that students do care about academic freedom, and people do still care about making sure that censorship does not happen on campuses, and to see other people as involved and as concerned about this as they should be really meant a lot to us. So it was very rewarding to see this kind of turnout. 
um, the event took place. The event didn't really have much controversy at all. I think everyone from different voices were there. We had the Zionists there. We had the pro-Palestinian. We had those that were in the middle. And uh, people asked their questions. They were respectful. It was overall a successful event. And that was year one. That was year one. Let's move on uh, to last year, year now. Year two, I, uh, it was myself as public relations officer, so I was an exec member, maybe inspired by year one. And uh, I had a larger event. I thought, let's take it forward. So we had three events, one with uh, you know, Dr. Atif Gaborsi, John Elmer, a freelance reporter. And then we had Alison Weir from ifamericansnew.org. Anissa, now, did, your, did your postering was, strategy change at all for the second year? No, the, uh, so that's a good question. No, the second year we did, we were told by the administration that they never actually said no. And we said, what are you talking about? We, we're not allowed to have these posters, and we were told that it's banned. And uh, they said, no, no, we respect academic freedom, and there must have been some miscommunication. And uh, no, we, you can have these posters now. So there must have been a, a big uh, you know, backlash over the fact that uh, the, communi- the institution of higher learning is trying to censor academic freedom. And uh, I think a lot of other people, even if they didn't care about the Palestinian plight, they do care about academic freedom. And so they had a lot more people latch down and pay attention at this point. So we were told you can use the poster and you can have Israeli apartheid. And the university's position is that they're going to respect academic freedom. So I had the poster. I had the term on there. We named the week and we had our event. However, it was very unfortunate that this event did not go as peacefully as our first year had gone. And I must admit, and I want to add, that it wasn't because of the Zionist students. They were there, and they asked their questions, and they were still respectful. It was faculty members of the Jewish faculty, you know, those that are professors at McMaster University, and it was people from within their community, again, not young people, these were respected elders of the community, who were misbehaving and who were acting in absolute unheard of, uh, you know, ways and manners and uh, amongst uh, things that had happened at this event. And I really was very shocked and to this day hurt. Uh, we had someone come up to our speaker, wave a finger right in her face, inches apart, in the middle of her lecture and call her a liar, liar, liar and walk out. We had another person towards the end of the event pick up a piece of paper, an object, and throw it at the speaker and tell her, F you, educate yourself on the facts. I mean... This is just uncalled for behavior, and uh, again, it, it's even more disheartening to see this coming from not the students, who were still respectful even though they had disagreements, but from the adults, from the you know, respected community leaders that came in with the Jewish faculty that were sitting with them and left with them. Um, this was really disheartening. Anissa Mirza, I'd like to thank you for appearing on Alert Radio. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. I'm joined now by Chief Fabian Alexis. He is the chief of the Okanagan Indian Band in Vernon, B.C. And this is a breaking story that we're talking about here. I understand that there's a blockade going in your area, but first, can you give us a a specific idea of where you are in the country? We're uh, in the uh, Okanagan Valley. Uh, situated uh, pretty much inland, uh, about 350 miles inland from uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, where the Olympics were just held. Uh, 
where our blockade uh, from our uh, um, well, our reserve is uh, is uh, near uh, Vernon, British Columbia, and um, we have uh, two points of uh, our efforts here. We have a checkpoint it's, uh, that's uh, halfway down our our main reserve, IR one, and we also have uh, a blockade up in the mountains, uh, about 24, uh, well, a little more, about 35 kilometers from where we're uh, where I'm talking to you from today. So tell us, who is the company that you are blockading, and why are you doing it? What are they up to? Well, initially, uh, the, well, the company that we're blockading is uh, Tolco uh, Industries. It's a privately owned company, a huge uh, logging company. And uh, um, initially, uh, if you don't, if you don't uh, quite know, um, we have an issue that's been going on in our community for the past 10 years, a logging issue. Um, we have a, a court case. It's called the Wilson case. Um, it initiated back in 1999 and then got into the courts in 2003. So we've been in the courts from then to date. Tolco is a, is a, thir- uh, a third party. Initially, our issue was with the Ministry of Forest. And then Tolco, uh, as, as I mentioned, is a third party. They came to us a number of years ago saying that they, they have a, a license to, a permit to, uh, to cut logs in, our, in the litigation area that we're in dispute over with the province. And uh, we have also a, a court order uh, that says that there's preservation of evidence that needs to, to uh, take place here. And uh, so Toko stayed out of the area for a period of time, but are saying that they need to go in log because of uh, uh, forest health. There's, it's, there's a huge area of mountain pine beetle. But we're saying, well, the market at the time, a, few, uh, a while back, not long ago, wasn't very good. And so they kept saying, well, well, we uh, we do we do need to log in the name of health for South. We're saying, well, no, no, you don't, not really. So, anyways, just uh, going back to uh, October 2009, they finally said, okay, we've held off enough. We got to go in the log, and we said, no, you're not. Firstly, we have elders in the area collecting, uh, doing mapping, of uh, uh, trail mapping uh, for us in the area, in the litigation area, and also doing there's some archaeological work that's being done. So, uh, but Tolko, uh, it didn't. Uh, it went on deaf ears. So, anyways, the uh, the threat of an injunction uh, came about. We went. Uh, uh, they filed an injunction against us for, uh, to cease and desist. Um, also, charged for uh, we were charged for uh, irreparable harm or damages and whatnot. And uh, so, we countersued them. We countersued Tolko for trespass, and as well uh, for damages uh, um, uh, as well. So it got to, uh, there was no decision made until January 2010. Uh, Judge Brown uh, made a decision. We argued, uh, we didn't get uh, too much acknowledgement on our argument for trespass, but the judge did uh, take into account our archaeological evidence and the importance of it and uh, why we are trying to protect it. But she did also uh, say that, uh, she acknowledges that uh, Toko does have a right, you know, based in, on economics and that, and blah, 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 that they have to go in and log and all this. And so she bought some of their story as well. But uh, when it came down to 2010, uh, the decision from her, it wasn't quite uh, uh, a formal inf- um, injunction that she gave. There was conditions, again, that, uh, that uh, she pointed out on archaeology. There was an, an archaeology assessment overview assessment that's what's been done. We uh, ourselves as chiefs here, uh, we didn't take part. We had our technical people taking part. 
And what was uh, initially the fight was for 50,000 cubic meters. It was reduced down to uh, 15,000 cubic meters in, in the watershed, and that's uh, the main part of uh, also why we've, uh, why we've took, taken up this uh, fight with uh, TOCO, because um, uh, right from the get-go, going back to the Wilson case, we've uh, always pointed out that the watershed is very important to our community. We uh, went along some lines to uh, strategize to make a watershed protection plan, but there again, um, there is there's uh, it costs a lot of money to 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 get this uh, off the ground. So, we, but, but going back to the uh, the injunction that Judge uh, Brown had put down, um, we had problems around the archaeology. Uh, Toko had hired, uh, firstly, the the archaeologists archaeologists that was first hired by Toko. Uh, said there was no uh, uh, signed off on this report, basically saying that there was no uh, in, um, in, uh, archaeological evidence in the area. Pretty much just did it all from a uh, from a literature review. Didn't even go out on site. Didn't no, didn't do no testing whatsoever. So uh, and we've uh, we noted that with Toco and and uh, what there again went on deaf ears. No concern there. And so, anyways, when it come back to uh, Judge Brown's decision, there was a new archaeologist hired, I R Wilson. We're uh, we're boycotting him uh, and advising other First Nations in British Columbia to, uh, to boycott him as well. But um, on top of that, though, uh, when he was working out on the and get this, uh, part of the archaeological work that was to uh, the assessment that was done on the uh, on the eight cut blocks that we're currently fighting for, um, there's four to five feet of snow, and you can't tell me that uh, you can do a, a thorough professional job with four or five feet of snow um, unless you got x-ray vision to say okay there's no trails here and there might be a trail there but i you know i need to look Chief so there Fabian. Must have been some assessments like meet a low moderate and high potential for archaeological evidence and anyways um, uh, when our technical technical people were out with this person this archaeologist he was just discounting and uh and Denny wasn't even uh, really paying attention to our input that we're trying to do. Chief Fabian Alexis, uh, yes. thank you for all that background. I'd like to ask you what actions you're taking. I understand there's a blockade. What do you hope to accomplish? Well, we have a blockade in the, in, up in the, up in the uh, 24 kilometer area, and uh, we hope to have no logging in the watershed. And, if it, and, uh, and we've stated that a number of times uh, um, to, uh, to the through our media releases, and uh, even to uh, the RCMP as well. We've been in some discussions with them for, uh, well, four times, so now we've had uh, talks with them. Now, I understand that uh, you have uh, one of your colleagues there. Can I ask you to pass the phone over sure to can. Chief Stuart uh, Phillips? Grand Chief Stuart Phillips. Hello, G- Grand Chief Stuart Phillips. You are the president of the Union of BC Chiefs. Welcome to Alert Radio. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. We've just had a conversation with Chief Fabian Alexis, but we understand that uh, there is widespread support uh, across the province. Can you tell us about that? Yes, without question, uh, the support grows daily. It's not only Indigenous support, it's um, many, many mainstream, non-Native environmental organizations are publicly expressing their support, uh, regional environmental and conservation groups, um, particularly those groups that are concerned with the health and well-being of watersheds and river systems, are definitely indicating their support. Um, 
We've received um, inquiries, emails, faxes, um, and so on right across the country. So as the awareness grows, the support grows um, at the same time. Well, what actions uh, are, how is this support manifesting itself in, in direct action? What groups have been doing is issuing public statements of support. They've been uh, talking directly to the ministries involved in this issue. And and um, I've been on the phone today with the BC Civil Liberties Association. They have trained observers that um, attend these situations in the event that the enforcement order is executed by the RCMP, they would be on hand to record through cameras and and uh, video cameras the arrest procedures and so on and so forth. So um, again, we have a lot of support from a variety of different groups and organizations. Grand Chief Stuart Phillips, I'd like to thank you and also Chief Fabian Alexis for bringing us up to date on the blockade that's happening in the Okanagan Valley uh, against TOCO. Thank you very much for joining us on Alert Radio. We are at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes, and we appreciate your contribution. Okay, thank you. Thank you. This is Mitch Podolik, this is Music is a Weapon, and this week I thought I would reach backward a little bit into some of the classic labor songs and play a few of them, and then I thought I would reach forward a little bit and play a couple of new songs that are written by, by labor singers and radical singers. I grew up in a household that had a, a beautiful copy of the old uh, folkways, the uh, almanac singers singing all those old union ballads, uh, um, Talking Union and Which Side Are You On and Solidarity and Hold the Fort and all those songs. And uh, I grew up with that kind of stuff, and I really kind of have it in my consciousness. But, you know, the most interesting thing is, is that in the last period of time, you don't hear very many young performers singing labor songs, singing the old songs, and, and very few writing the new labor songs until very recently. All of a sudden, I've been noticing this emergence of people who are doing it again, and it sure makes me happy. So let's start off with the old classic, Here is the Union Maid. There once was a union maid who never was afraid of the goons and the gates and the company fits and the deputy sheriff who made the raid. She went to the union hall when the meeting it was called and when the company boys came round she always stood her ground. No, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. No, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. This union mate was wise to the tricks of company spies. She wouldn't be fooled by company stools. She'd always organize the guys. She'd always get her way when they asked for higher pay. She'd show her card to the National Guard, and this is what she'd say. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die.
you gals want to be free, just take a tip from me. Find you a man who's a union man and join the ladies auxiliary. Oh, married life ain't hard if you got a union card. A union man leads a happy life if you got a union wife. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. We modern union maids are also not afraid to walk the line, leave jobs behind, and we're not just the ladies. They will fight for equal pay, and we will have our say. We're workers to the same as you, and fight the union way. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. Hey. That was the New Harmony Sisterhood Band singing the old classic labor song, The Union Maid. Now, Woody Guthrie wrote The Union Maid. And one time the American uh, AFL-CIO Ladies Auxiliary approached Woody and said, Woody, we'd like you to write us a song. He said, well, I wrote The Union Maid for you. And they said, yeah, but it doesn't have the words Ladies Auxiliary in the body of the song. So Woody sat down and he wrote him a song. He went... Well, the ladies' auxiliary is a good auxiliary. It's the best auxiliary that you ever did see. But if you need an auxiliary, call the ladies' auxiliary. It's the ladies' auxiliary. Now, of course, we get killed for singing that out loud in these days and times. But Woody didn't care. He just uh, he just thought it was a good, funny joke. And at the time, Pete Seeger recorded it, and everybody thought it was really great. And I still think it's pretty great. Here's another song. Here's a here's a song that we all know, Bread and Roses. It came from the Lawrence, Massachusetts strike, and uh, it's become one of the finest classics of the labor movement. Here is Bread and Roses. As we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens. A thousand mill lofts gray Are touched with all the radiance That a sudden sun discloses For the people hear us singing Bread and roses, bread and roses As we come marching, marching We battle too for men For they are women's children And we mother them again Our lives shall not be sweated From birth until life closes Hearts starve as well as bodies Give us bread but give us roses As we come marching, marching 
unnumbered women dead go crying through our singing their ancient song for bread small lords and love and beauty their drudging spirits new yes it is bread we fight for but we fight for roses too marching marching we bring the greater days for the rising of the women means the rising of the race no more the drudge and idler tend that toil where one reposes but a sharing of life's glories bread and roses bread and That was Billy McGee with Bread and Roses. Really beautifully done, I thought. This week is, of course, uh, International Women's Day, March 8th, and this was we thought these two songs would do very well. There's a whole bunch of new young writers cooking along, and my favorite is a fellow named Joe Jenks. He's, uh, he's just got that sort of militant edge to him that I really kind of enjoy, and he's just an uncompromising human being. And here he is with a great song called War on the Workers. Deadly cold It's a war zone here today Right in the heartland But our union's here to stay Multinational corporations Don't use tanks and guns, it's true They've declared a war on us Fight back, it's up to you Oh, it's a war on the workers It's a war on the workers It's a war on the workers And it's time we started calling the shots Deadly corn Could be the death of you and me But we're not on our our weapons solidarity Well each work day is a battle Toxic chemicals and smells He was bad enough with Staley With Tate and Lila's hair Oh it's a war on the workers It's a war on the workers War on the workers It's a war on the workers And it's time we started calling Deadly corn Workplace safety is a joke There's the dust The BSS asbestos Fire and smoke well, Jim Beals was Murdered outright Poisoned by P.O. But Tate and Lyle's philosophies Die quickly or die slow It's still a war on the workers War on the workers It's a war on the workers They can lock us up, they can lock us out We will not give in No more lies, no compromise We'll battle till we win Oh, it's a war on the workers War on the workers It's a war on the workers War on the workers 
That was the Burns Sisters with No More Silence and before that War on the Workers sung by Joe Jenks. I'm Mitch Podolik and this is Music is the Weapon. See you next week. If you enjoyed the show, please consider picking up the latest issue of Canadian Dimension magazine on newsstands now. Our latest issue focuses on the characters, culture and politics of our Winnipeg. Guest edited by acclaimed Winnipeg filmmakers Guy Mannon and Noam Gonick, the issue comes with a set of collectible Winnipeg alternative celebrity baseball cards. Order a subscription online today at canadiandimension.com. And that is Alert Radio for March 4th, 2010. We can be found at canadiandimension.com. And I'm Jeff Hughes. I hope you'll join us again next week. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon.
Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com.